Well, let's get into the Word of God. And we are going to be in some different places. So you can be ready to turn to some different parts of the Word of God. I'm going to read something out of Deuteronomy, uh, just one verse. Uh, we've been going through Deuteronomy on Wednesday nights for a long time now. And uh, just chapter 28 took three weeks because it was, what, 68 verses, I think. Something like that is a lot of verses in uh, Deuteronomy 28. And this past week, we were in Deuteronomy 29. I'm pretty sure we got through the whole chapter. And there's a verse in Deuteronomy 29, verse, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9, that says, Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them, that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Now, the first place I'm going to turn to is going to be Proverbs chapter 6. Now, thinking about the words, the words of this holy Bible, they are pure words. They have been tried in a furnace of earth, purified uh, seven times, like silver tried in, the, in a furnace seven times. And we need to pay attention to the Word of God. We need to want to have it with us at all times. We want it to be uh, something that we are, are holding on to, that we show other people that we hold these words dear. So we carry it around outwardly. But what's more important is that you get it inside of you. It needs to be inward. It needs to be in your mind, and it needs to be in your hearts. Now, in Proverbs 6, starting with verse 20, it says, My son, keep thy father's commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother. So fathers and mothers should be good examples for their children, and they should know the words of, the God, uh, the words of God of the words of the Bible, and they, they should speak them. It should be in their common language of the day. You should say things that are uh, from the Bible. It should be in your normal speaking. And you should know it so well that uh, your, your children know that you know it and that your children will grow up in that. I mean, I, I, know, I know older people probably just older people who know so much of the Bible, though they may have never read it. But their parents were very strong in knowing the Word of God, and because they were brought up under godly principles, the, the, the decisions that they make in life, the things that they know work right, came from the Bible. They'll even have sayings that come out of the Bible, and they may not even know. They may have turned away from a life of Christian living, but yet they still have what was ingrained into them from their parents. And then 21 says, bind them. This is talking about the, commandment, the father's commandments and, and the mother's law that they know from the Word of God 
you should bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. 22. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. The Word of God should direct your steps in this life. The Word of God should lead you to where you go. We have all kinds of choices in life. And what, 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 makes, what, what has influenced us, is it just good advice from people? And it might, it might, uh, you might do well on this, in this world by accepting advice from people who are ex- experienced in this life, but does it line up with the Word of God? That's what truly should be leading you. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. You know, there's a, a scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan. And remember the, the sniper? If you've ever watched Saving Private Ryan's World War II movie, um, amazing movie, awesome movie. And the sniper guy, he was, he was always quoting scripture throughout the whole movie, right up until the time he died. And he sacrificed himself up in that tower to help the mission that was bigger than him. And earlier in the movie, they were inside of a building. It may, it may have even been a church building. And they were all waiting out the night, and the blasts were going on outside. You could hear all the noise. And that guy is sleeping soundly. No one else could sleep. And he's laying there, sleeping like a little baby. And one of the other soldiers looked down and said, how can he do that? And another guy said, a clear conscience. You know, he was the one that was speaking the word of God throughout the whole movie. So, when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. You know, if you're having a hard time going to sleep at night, open up the Word of God and start reading it. It'll start to calm your soul. You know, you, if you really want to go to sleep fast, just read something out of Chronicles or something, and it'll bore you. It might bore you. Go to some genealogy and just start reading all those names. Boom, you'll be out. But read. Read the Word of God. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. Wow. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. So that is just some scripture to show you how important the Word of God is. It's so many people in our world today, in this country, they have pushed the Word of God aside. They don't want anything to do with it. And because of that, all you got to do is watch the news, look at the things that come up, and the things that we're reading about, things that we are putting up with in this country. It is proof that we have uh, decided not to keep the words of this covenant and to do them that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Now, I've shared a couple things on Wednesdays recently that uh, kind of shore up that we are reading out of the King James Bible. We're preaching out of the King James Bible. We love the King James Bible. And I, I shared something that I thought was interesting, and I'm going to share it real quick with you. And then we're going we're gonna to go into it's two different things. And 
I think Addison, I think she likes stuff like this. I think she likes all of these little, little signs that are in the Word of God. And when we were talking about uh, bondage and liberty, I don't think I shared it on a Sunday, but we were talking on a Wednesday, we were, and I asked everybody, I remember it being a Wednesday when I asked this, I said, how many times is the word bondage in the Bible, throughout the whole Bible? And it's 39 times that the word bondage is in our Bible. But that's the King James Bible, not, in, not the others. Well, how many books are there in the Old Testament? There's 39 books in the Old Testament. Bondage, being in bondage, sin, the law tells us we're in bondage to sin, right? So the Old Testament, 39 books, just happens to have 39 times that bondage is used throughout the whole Bible. And then uh, in Galatians 5.1 it says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, liberty is what we're after. That's what Jesus can do for us, is to give us liberty and freedom from those sins to live a life for Him. So, how many times is the word liberty in the Bible? How many books are there in the New Testament? It's the, that answer is the same. What is it? 27. It, now, is that cool? That's pretty cool. Now... Here's another thing I brought up, I think it was this past Wednesday, or the Wednesday before. In 1 Kings, so I have people will ask me, I get some crazy questions at the jail, have for years. And I like that. I like these guys coming in to the Bible study at the jail, and, they'll, and, I, and I want them to ask questions. I'm not concerned about them asking me a question too hard, uh, not because I know it all. If they can stump me on something, I'm like, good job. I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna have to search that out. I'm just a person like they are. But I love the questions. And, th you know, there may be questions like, well, how do we know we really have uh, the right Bible? How do we know something's not missing? Because they'll ask questions like, well, what about the book of Enoch? Why isn't that in the Bible? That's one of the latest ones. So I try to help them with believing that we have the perfect Bible. What we have today is perfect. Those 66 books are exactly what we need. And I brought up Isaiah has 66 chapters in Isaiah. And then I showed them the first chapter and how it, it uh, talking about if you disobey God, you'll be taken out of the land and kind of made that go along with being in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, how they disobeyed and they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, how there's a similarity there, and that matched up with the first one. And then you go all the way to the end of Isaiah and go to 66, and it's talking about that being in heaven and all the heavenly stuff that you see in Revelation. And then there's, there's a, a pastor who did a whole teaching on how he could pull something out of every single chapter of Isaiah to match it up with a book of the Bible. That was, so that's one thing we did. Now here's the other thing that I thought was really cool. Where, so if, you know how I love numbers. I love the number seven, and we talk about the significance of it. And the number 39 we just talked about, and the number 27. But what about 66? 
because there's 66 ver uh, books of the Bible. And the, so if the guy that, that did this, he went to the Bible to find the first time that there was 66 chapters in the 66 verses in a chapter of the Bible. And as he started searching through the Bible, he, when he came to the first time that there's a chapter where there's 66 verses, it was 1 Kings chapter 8. So he started to, to investigate, and he started looking into it, and what he found was, he, so he went to 39, because there's 39 Old Testament books, and he went to that verse, and he counted how many words were in the verse. And it's 39 words in verse 39. So he went to 27, he counted how many words were in verse 27, and it was 27. He was like, I don't know, this is crazy. So then he, he read what it said. And uh, so uh, if you're not already there, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. And then we're going to talk about what this is referring to in chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, now look at what 39, go to, go to verse 39 first. It says, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. So that's God in the Old Testament, we know God as being in heaven. That's his dwelling place. So that makes sense. And forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. Now that's 39 words in that verse, right? If you have a King James Bible. Now, if you have a different version, it's, it's going to be off just a little bit. So look at 27. So, does 20, so that's very, that is very Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament, and it's got some Old Testament reference. But does 27 have any reference to the New Testament? So look at what 27 says. The first part of 27 is a question, and it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's New Testament. God was manifest in the flesh. Where's that at in your, in your New Testament? God manifest in the flesh. Now you see, the Word became flesh, right? In, in John 1, the Word came down to dwell with us. And there's another place. And it's 1 Timothy 3.16. And, it, and in that verse, it talks about, it says, God was manifest in the flesh. Now, if you have a newer version, it doesn't say God. It'll, change, it'll take God out and put He, capitalize He, or some other word like that. Now, you say, what's the big deal about that? Well, when it said God was manifest in the flesh, well, we know that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Now, some of these new versions, they could take God out and put Jesus there. And you say, well, that's, that's true. It is, but what did they do by taking God out and putting Jesus in, or, or just He? You, you see where, what they're doing? God was manifest in the flesh. So the, one of the number one things I deal with is people doubting that Jesus is the third person of the Trinity, or the second person of the Trinity, and He is God. Is Jesus really God? 
And, I, and that's what I have to fight against, the, the Trinity. So when you take God was manifest in the flesh out of 1 Timothy 3.16 and put anything else in there, it's, it's try, it's, isn't that sneaky? Isn't that really, really sneaky? Now, we've already, listen to this, we've already got wiregrass growing in the mulch. Okay? It was sprayed beforehand to kill it. Now, if you mix up, and I've shared this a long time ago, pay very close attention. If you mix up a strong weed killer, grass killer, and you go around and you spray wiregrass, and you come back a few days later and it's toast, if you mix fertilizer and you pour fertilizer all over that wiregrass, it just greens up even more and grows that much faster, right? Okay, wiregrass has an ability to realize something is killing it and it shuts down. So if it's obvious poison being put on them, on the plants, then they realize that's happening. This is the grass. Realizes that something is corrupting it and it will shut down so the poison will only go so far. And all the tops will be burnt to a crisp, but the roots will survive, and it will come back with a vengeance. Now, if you, if you take the fertilizer, the good stuff, and you mix in your weed killer, your grass killer, with it, and spray the wire grass, it's going to soak it up and pull it back really, really deep. Be very careful about the things that have been changed in new versions of the Bible. The devil is smart. He knows that if he gives you the bad, the corrupt, you will see it and you will reject it right away. But what he does is he'll take the word God out and he'll put in he so that the deity of Jesus Christ will be very, very sneakily taken out, and it will get into you, and it will go deep, and you never knew it happened. You thought you were reading the good stuff. You thought you were getting the Word of God complete. It's all you need, but the devil's tricked you, and he has diminished Jesus as being God. That makes sense. <clears throat> so, what, what is first? Kings chapter 8 even talking about? What, what is, he says, this is 27, I never read it all, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Well, we know he does. He comes down as Jesus, being born of a virgin, and living a life here on this earth for the purpose of becoming a sacrifice for each and every one of us, and all those people from back then, and people who will be born later. Behold, the heaven, notice this, the heaven and the heaven of heavens. You know we got three heavens, right? You got the atmosphere that you see right above your head. The birds will fly through. That's the first heaven. Then you have the second heaven, which is our universe, and the earth is in that universe. So that's a heaven. And then there is the heaven of heavens, which is where God is seated. Uh, his throne is, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the heaven of heavens. 
Now, God cannot be contained in the heaven or the heaven of heavens. And, and uh, th- this is 1 Kings. And what is being said? The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. So Solomon is talking about the temple that he has built for God. They finally, we're you know going through Deuteronomy. I mean, we're all the way up to 29, and we still haven't got in the promised land. You're not going to get in the promised land in Deuteronomy. You're getting all the preparations to get you there. See, there's a lot of preparations that happen before the thing gets started of actually going across the Jordan River. And there, so Moses is going to have to die off, and Joshua is going to have to take them in, right? Okay, Solomon, he has, he has finally got to the point where he can build the temple. David wanted to do it. Solomon's father wanted to build the temple. It was a great uh, thing that he wanted to do. And God said, you know, I appreciate you wanting to do this. It's great that you do, but you can't, but your son will. And David made a lot of preparations so that when Solomon was born and became a king, that he could follow through with the heart of of David, which was to build a temple. See, there was a tabernacle. There was this, they were always moving, so they had to, you know, make up, get the tabernacle set up, and they had to tear it down, they had to move it. So now they actually have that place where God's going to put His name. That's what we've been reading all through Deuteronomy on Wednesdays. And now Solomon is actually going to build the place where God can put His name. You hear that over and over. His name will be there. Well, this Word of God, this Word of God, God has put His name in this Word of God. His name is here. We need to treat it like something very holy, like the temple was. Don't corrupt it. Keep it pure. You don't want to do anything wrong in the temple. You want to keep it pure. Don't desecrate it. And if, if, if God can't be contained in the heavens, you know how big the second heaven is. I mean, we've sent telescopes out, and it, it is so far away, and we've, we get to where we can see so much further than we could before and realize it goes even further than that. It's monstrous. And if you can't contain God in that, how are you going to contain Him in this house? So that's what Solomon is talking about. He's talking about the temple. How long did it take to build this temple, Solomon's temple? How long did it take to build it? Anybody know? Any guesses on how long it took Solomon to have this temple built? Now remember all the preparations that were done before. So you're not even counting all of the wood that was hewn all of the uh, stones that were made to be workable to put in the temple, all that stuff was being done. And he had thousands and thousands upon thousands of people making this happen. There was, I mean, you, go, you read uh, chapter 6 of 1 Kings and you will see how many people were involved. <clears throat> all right, notice in the, very, in the very beginning of chapter 6 of 1 Kings, Oh, something else about... Nah, I'll, I'll wait on that. Uh, 
Hopefully I won't forget. But there's something cool about chapter 8 that I want to say, and hopefully I won't forget. Okay, in chapter 6, it says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth, notice that it says, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to, to build the house of the Lord. That's when he began to build it. So it's in the fourth year of his reign. And then turn to the very end of chapter 6, 37 and 38. And it says it again, In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid. That's when the foundation. All right, now this King James Bible, this Bible... There was another king named King James that this Bible is actually named after. And he, as being the reigning king of England, he said that we're going to get a new translation, a new version of the Bible. Well, actually, yeah, we're going to translate into English. There had been all kinds of prep work done before. Think about what all of these other people did in prepping getting the Greek translated to English, getting the Hebrew translated, and there was a lot of people who were involved leading up to the day that they actually started working on it. And when did, it start, when did they start working on the King James Bible? It was 1604. Four. Okay? In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he began to build. The foundations were laid. Well, the foundations were laid in 1604 to get this King James Bible going. Now look at uh, verse 38. And in the 11th year, are y'all pay very close, good attention to these numbers. In the 11th year, in the month Buell, which is the 8th month, which was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof, and according to all the fashion of it. So was he seven years in building it. The eleventh year. When did the King James Bible actually come out? When did, when did they finish it? 1611. Seven years in the making, just like the first temple. Is that just a coincidence? I'm not sure, but it's interesting to me. It's just interesting. Okay? So it took seven years. But all the preparation had to be done, and all those people put in place to make it happen in seven years. Now, what about the temple <clears throat> that got destroyed in A.D. 70? How long did it take to build that temple? Remember when in, in John chapter 2, after Jesus, uh, you know, he, he cleared out the temple, and they were fussing at him, and he said, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days is basically what he said, right? Destroy this temple and he will rear it up in three days. Now, we know that he was talking about himself. He was talking about his body. You kill this body and in three days I'll raise it up again. But he was, they thought he was talking about the temple. And what was their response? <clears throat> they said 46 years this temple has been in building. It actually says, was in building. And I, like, in building. 
Do you realize that the temple was still being built? The whole lifetime of Jesus on this earth, the temple was still being built. It wasn't even finished. I didn't know that. When did that temple, when did, and that was Herod's temple. Herod's temple. And because he, he, he could, just because he could, he wanted to, you know, he was their ruler, smeared it in their face, you know, he was, he was their ruler. And he wanted, they, you know, people say, well, he just wanted to do something nice for all these Jews. And he started building this magnificent temple in like 19 B.C. So it took 10 years to get the whole building up, but none of the finishing stuff got done. You realize it didn't get done until like 64? I think it was 64 A.D. That it didn't actually get done. And then it got destroyed completely in A.D. 70. But of course, they weren't supposed to destroy it. I mean, Herod, and Herod died way before that. He saw it being built, and then he died right about the time Jesus came around, right? Because Jesus was really little, and he heard, they heard that Herod had died, and he come up out of Egypt and goes back to his homeland. So Herod died, but then there's the other Herod, one of his sons, who had to you know, have John the Baptist's head cut off. Uh, that was a different Herod. Well, <clears throat> that temple was the one that Jesus went into, they were sacrificing animals there. They were doing all the stuff that you do at a temple, but it was never really finished. And they were told in the AD 70, when they went to besiege the city and destroy everything, they were told, do not destroy that temple. Don't do anything to hurt that temple. Burn everything else to the ground, but don't hurt that temple. But Jesus had already said, not a stone will be left on top of another. Every single stone of this place will be taken down. Well, they said, no, we're not going to destroy this place. But we know that it got destroyed, right? Somebody messed up and threw fire in there, and it caught on fire, and it burned so hot. See, everything was overlaid with gold, and all the gold melted and went down into the cracks of the stones. So when it was all done and everything cooled down, all the soldiers realized there's a lot of gold under these rocks. So they started prying the rocks, and they, they, every last stone got turned over so they can get the gold out. And then somebody went, remember Jesus said that every last stone would be... Wow. So the temple is important in that it is a type of something. And what is that type? You know, we are supposed to be the temple. When I, when I was praying earlier, we need to understand that if we are true believers, then we are the temple. And what comes into the temple? Now, now back, back in uh, Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, when you start reading that, notice it's 66 verses in that chapter. All of what we need to know is in these 66 books of the Bible. But the Shekinah glory goes into the temple. The Ark of the Covenant gets taken into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. Go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Here's some proof that you are the temple. If you're a believer, 
You are the temple. Everybody there? Ephesians chapter 2, this is at the end of Ephesians. Y'all ready? In verse 19 it says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now house, when you see the word house, that's Israel. Okay, we were separate. We were not, as Gentiles I'm talking, we were not able to go to the temple. We definitely couldn't go into the temple, right? But what we've learned in Hebrews over the last several, several weeks, we've learned in Hebrews that Jesus came down to sprinkle the real blood, but he, he was to take his blood up to the true holy of holies in heaven and to sprinkle it there. So the temple that was on the earth was an image of what was in heaven. And if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers, if that could cleanse, you of, of, cleanse your flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you from all unrighteousness? You know, we learned that in Hebrews. We are to look at the blood of Christ, and when, what He did, He becomes our high priest, and we have the same benefits as the Jews had. So that's what it says right here. Uh, now, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That was that same stone that got thrown over the hill, and they had to go find it, because without that chief cornerstone, you could, nothing else was going to work. So Jesus isn't the chief cornerstone of your of your belief, of your Christian life, then you don't have anything, being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye, each and every one of you, also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You are supposed to be the habitation of God Almighty through the Holy Ghost coming inside of you. You are the temple. You are the temple. When that Ark of the Covenant was carried into the temple, just think of Jesus Christ being carried inside of you and the Shekinah glory of God coming into the temple. That light and that lamp through Jesus Christ be dwelling in you, how much greater that is. Think about it. So this body of ours being the temple, don't desecrate it. We need to put away, by keeping God's Word, by knowing what's in this Bible, an uncorrupted Bible, by knowing what's in here, by reading it, studying it, meditating on it, eating it, we are keeping our temple undefiled. We don't want sinful things in our lives anymore. 
those things start to repulse us. Those, those things that used to satisfy the flesh, those abominable things, we don't want those things anymore when we are a new creature in Christ. And this Bible tells us how we get to that point. This is the instructions right here. We need to desire it. We need to want to read it. Get it into our minds and into our hearts. Bind them to your hearts. Tie them around your neck. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we just pray to you now that we will be a people who keep your commandments, keep your words, that we will do them. Father, we want to be a pure, holy temple for you. And Father, we know that we can't do the things that would make us pure. We can't do the things that would make us holy. But Father, when we look at the blood of Jesus Christ, we have faith in what He has done for us. And Father, when we look at what Jesus has done and we believe with all of our hearts that that precious blood has done the work, then Father, we become that temple. And Father, we, we know Your Word. We, we want to follow Your ways. And Father, help us to keep this temple pure and holy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.